Preface to The Man of Property This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Foresight Saga The Man of Property by John Galsworthy Dedication and Preface Dedication To my wife I dedicate the Foresight Saga in its entirety, believing it to be, of all my works, the least unworthy of one without whose encouragement, sympathy, and criticism I could never have become even such a writer as I am. Preface The Foresight Saga was the title originally destined for that part of it which is called The Man of Property, and to adopt it for the collected chronicles of the Foresight family has indulged the Foresightian tenacity that is in all of us. The word saga might be objected to on the ground that it connotes the heroic, and that there is little heroism in these pages. But it is used with a suitable irony, and after all, this long tale, though it may deal with folk in frock-coats, furbelows, and a gilt-edged period, is not devoid of the essential heat of conflict. Discounting for the gigantic stature and bloodthirstiness of old days, as they have come down to us in fairy-tale and legend, the folk of the old sagas were foresights, assuredly, in their possessive instincts, and as little proof against the inroads of beauty and passion as were Swithin, Soames, or even young Jollyon and if heroic figures, in days that never were, seemed to startle out of their surroundings, in fashion unbecoming to a foresight of the Victorian era, we may be sure that tribal instinct was even then the prime force, and that family and the sense of home and property counted as they do to this day, for all the recent efforts to talk them out. So many people have written and claimed that their families were the originals of the foresights, that one has been almost encouraged to believe in the typicality of an imagined species. Manners change and modes evolve, and Timothy's on the Bayswater Road becomes a nest of the unbelievable in all except essentials. We shall not look upon its like again, nor perhaps on such a one as James or old Jollyon, and yet the figures of insurance societies and the utterances of judges reassure us daily that our earthly paradise is still a rich preserve, where the wild raiders, beauty and passion, come stealing in, filching security from under our noses. Assuredly as a dog will bark at a brass band, so will the essential Soames in human nature ever rise up uneasily against the dissolution which hovers around the folds of ownership. "'Let the dead past bury its dead,' would be a better saying, if the past ever died. The persistence of the past is one of those tragicomic blessings which each new age denies, coming cocksure on to the stage to mouth its claim to a perfect novelty. But no age is so new as that. Human nature, under its changing pretensions and clothes, is, and ever will be, very much of a foresight, and might, after all, be a much worse animal.' Looking back on the Victorian era, whose ripeness, decline, and fall-off is in some sort pictured in the Foresight Saga, we see now that we have but jumped out of a frying-pan into a fire. It would be difficult to substantiate a claim that the case of England was better in 1913 than it was in 1886, 
when the Forsytes assembled at Old Jollyon's to celebrate the engagement of June to Philip Bossini, and in 1920, when again the clan gathered to bless the marriage of Fleur with Michael Mont, the state of England is surely too molten and bankrupt, as in the eighties it was too congealed and low-percented. If these chronicles have been a really scientific study of transition, one would have dwelt probably on such factors as the invention of bicycle, motor-car, and flying-machine, the arrival of a cheap press, the decline of country life and increase of the towns, the birth of the cinema. Men are, in fact, quite unable to control their own inventions. They, at best, develop adaptability to the new conditions those inventions create. But this long tale is no scientific study of a period. It is rather an intimate incarnation of the disturbance that beauty affects in the lives of men. The figure of Irene, never, as the reader may possibly have observed, present except through the senses of other characters, is a concretion of disturbing beauty impinging on a possessive world. One has noticed that readers, as they wade on through the salt waters of the saga, are inclined more and more to pity Soames, and to think that in doing so they are in revolt against the mood of his creator. Far from it! He, too, pities Soames, in the tragedy of whose life is the very simple, uncontrollable tragedy of being unlovable, without quite thick enough a skin to be thoroughly unconscious of the fact. Not even Fleur loves Soames as he feels he ought to be loved. But in pitying Soames, readers inclined, perhaps, to animus against Irene. After all, they think, he wasn't a bad fellow, it wasn't his fault, she ought to have forgiven him, and so on. And, taking sides, they lose perception of the simple truth which underlies the whole story, that where sex attraction is utterly and definitely lacking in one partner to a union, no amount of pity, or reason, or duty, or what not, can overcome a repulsion implicit in nature. Whether it ought to or no is beside the point, because in fact it never does. And where Irene seems hard and cruel, as in the Bois de Boulogne or in the Gouverneur Gallery, she is but wisely realistic, knowing that the least concession is the inch which precedes the impossible, the repulsive L. A criticism one might pass on the last phase of the saga is the complaint that Irene and Jollyon, those rebels against property, claim spiritual property in their son John. But it would be hypercriticism, as the tale is told. No father and mother could have let the boy marry Fleur without knowledge of the facts, and the facts determine John, not the persuasion of the parents. Moreover, Jollyon's persuasion is not on his own account, but on Irene's, and Irene's persuasion becomes a reiterated, don't think of me, think of yourself. That John, knowing the facts, can realise his mother's feelings, will hardly with justice be held proof that she is, after all, a foresight. But though the impingement of beauty and the claims of freedom on a possessive world are the main prepossessions of the foresight saga, it cannot be absolved from the charge of embalming the upper middle class. As the old Egyptians placed around their mummies the necessaries of a future existence, so I have endeavoured to lay beside the figures of Aunts Anne and Julie and Hester, of Timothy and Swithin, of old Jollyon and James, and of their sons, that which shall guarantee them a little life hereafter, a little balm in the hurried Gilead of a dissolving progress. If the upper middle class, with other classes, is destined to move on into amorphism, here 
Pickled in these pages, it lies under glass for strollers in the wide and ill-arranged museum of letters. Here it rests, preserved in its own juice, the sense of property. End of Preface